0: I gave him the manuscript and I got it back two or three days later. This was when you did editing on paper with a red pen and so I looked at it and the first two or three pages had more red than black. So there was nothing, not a single sentence he had left uncommented.
1: This episode is part two of our interview with outgoing EMBO director, biologist Maria Lepton. On November 1st, Maria took up her new post as president of the European Research Council. In part one, Maria told us that in university she was originally studying to become a teacher, but meeting Fritz Melchers at an immunology course prompted her to apply to do a PhD with him at the Basel Institute of Immunology instead. She told us how she then executed another acute change in direction from mammalian immunology in Basel for her PhD to fly developmental biology at the MRC's laboratory of molecular biology in Cambridge for her postdoc. We also spoke about starting her own lab, some of the initiatives she launched during her decade leading EMBO, and some of the interesting scientific problems she leaves behind as she closes her two labs. In part two, we spoke about Maria's experiences writing her first papers, preprints, peer review, and the struggle to get proper childcare support when her career as a pi began we also talked about another of maria's initiatives at embo the science policy program with its head michelle garfinkel welcome to the embo podcast as maria explained the basel institute though a marvelous scientific institution was not geared towards the training of graduate students There were only two other PhD students there at the time. Maria told us a bit about her first experience writing papers in the Melchers lab. You told a very interesting story to a group of students in India about how Fritz would have his students write a single author paper as part of the PhD. Yes. So that's also a bit being thrown into the deep end quite quickly.
0: Yes, Fritz did throw into the deep end. He really was a very much hands-off supervisor of course he was always there for advice but he didn't sort of push you around or and and those papers yeah you had to do and he said it's your work you write it up i mean the the, the single author one was a nice little essay that i sort of worked out that was very nice it was fun to write it was easy to write because it was just a, a little methods paper but my first real paper. That was quite a different story. How so? Well, I, again, had to write it as a graduate. I wrote it and um, I think I had a bunch of co-authors and I gave it to a really eminent and clever, in fact, wise senior scientist at the Institute, Stephen de Fazekas St. I gave him the manuscript and I got it back two or three days later. This was when you did editing on paper with a red pen. And so I looked at it and the first two or three pages had more red than black. So there was nothing, not a single sentence he had left uncommented. And at page three, it stopped abruptly. Only black, but a note from him saying, this is the worst piece of writing he'd ever seen. There was no point in his wasting any further time on it, and he would have nothing more to do with it, and I was not allowed under any circumstances to mention his name in the acknowledgments or anywhere else in the context of this paper.
1: A bond that is now broken on yeah. the live radio waves of a podcast.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yes, true. Oh, <laughs> dear Stephen, I'm so sorry. Yes, but... Um,
1: now forever linked.
0: I, I learned, I learned, I learned, I learned, I learned that it matters to write well, that uh, you've got to get it right. You don't waste people's time with a first draft that you haven't yourself worked on extensively.
1: Is this something you do with your students and, and your postdocs, to have them go and, and write the first version of the paper?
0: Well, now for sure. I, I don't know when I started doing that. I think very early on. I must. Have, it must have been very early on. And you know, since then, I've always written my own papers. And when I, my first papers from my own lab had no students on them. So of course I wrote them. And then the later ones, I think we probably did together. I don't remember. But now, yes, of course, everybody writes their own papers.
1: Single author papers used to be more frequent, or single author and dog, uh, but the only people I know who still have them with their students are more in evolutionary biology and evo-devo field, where I still know people extant who, as supervisors who have that kind of practice. And it's getting more and more frequent that, because of the pace of things that people are reluctant to even let the, uh, the graduate students or even the postdoc to write the first draft of the paper.
0: Yes, I can understand that. You know, it's very, it, 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 it is a long process. And if it's very competitive, you've got to get the stuff out. Then your own experience in writing, of course, is what allows you to get it out fast. So I, I understand that. But of course, they have to learn. So when I've done, I, I liked what Fritz did about uh, writing your own work, but writing it up alone. But of course, he was also in a luxurious position. He didn't need grants. You know, the philosophy at the Rush at the Basel Institute was, you need money, you ask for money, you get it. So nobody needed any grants. Everything was fully funded. So he did not have to go out to the DFG or to, you know, the Wellcome Trust to HFSP or ERC and say, this is what I did in the last years and here's all my output. Whereas we have to do that. And it's even at a granular level, Mm. because if a student is on a grant, On your grant, you still have to say, on this grant, I did this work. But what I've done is I've encouraged students and postdocs to write reviews on their stuff because they have to read the literature anyway. They have to think it through. They have to write the introduction to their papers. And introduction shouldn't be a long essay. And so I've asked them to write or I've encouraged them to write reviews, single author, And many of my students have done that until the very recent past.
1: Of course, papers don't just have to be written, they also need to be reviewed. Learning how to review a manuscript is a, let's say, very heterogeneous process. The most common mode may resemble nothing so much as a medieval apprenticeship, with PhD students and postdocs gradually contributing bits and pieces, often uncredited, to their PI's reviews. This is one area where preprints may prove particularly helpful.
0: I remember at the beginning, and I don't know whether it's still true, that some labs did journal clubs on bioarchive papers. And you know, of course a journal club is is where you really tear a paper apart. And they would put those comments on as comments. That's fantastic. You know, if you're the lucky recipient of that kind of feedback, that's really great, because that's helpful. That's, that, that, that's what you really want from your peers. And the, they, of course, aren't anonymous either, so you can go back and ask them. That's the ideal. But that works only for a limited number of papers. I mean, how many papers does a lab do in Journal Club per year? Max 50, you know, once a week. This is not just the top-level, you know experienced researchers that are good referees. People in labs who are very young and who've only just learned something can be extremely good at at reviewing that. So if you don't need, you know, for, for paper, you get three referees reports. You could imagine a nice system where you got much more junior people, but who are experts in a small area of the field, to review part of the paper. There are many other models, but as always, the that that would work and that would be great, you know, be wonderful if they learned how to review an aspect of a paper, and their view was heard. But switching from the current system to any other system is 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 difficult.
1: There are many different models for reviewing preprints. One proposal is to forego pre-publication peer review altogether and simply allow peers to comment post-publication. EMBO and ASAP Bio implemented a different solution. Journal Independent Peer Review. Review Commons was launched in 2019 to curate peer review before submission to a journal. The process is run by EMBO Press Editors, but authors can submit directly through Review Commons to 17 different journals. The work is posted as preprints on bioarchives with the option to also post reviews, the author's response to reviewers, and a revised version as a refereed preprint. An analysis of the first year's results shows that time to public posting of peer-reviewed research was cut from over 253 to just 71 days. How was the decision made to to launch Review Commons at EMBO with ASAP Bio?
0: Many things we do here aren't sort of make a decision one day or have an idea, do a profound analysis, uh, consult then stick your heads together and then make a decision and then come up with a project plan and launch a project. It just doesn't happen that way. So this one was after that last HHMI meeting. About a half a year later or so, I was in San Francisco and went to UCSF and gave a science talk there and then went to um, see people at Biochem and BioPhys, including Ron. I said, Let's, for once, talk only about science. And he told me about you know, some of his fantastic new stuff, really exciting. But somehow this last meeting crept in, and we were really frustrated that we had not come up with some way forward. And so we just started ch- chatting about what one could do and how one could just, instead of re-reviewing, ...pass on the reviews and we drew it on the board. So we said, well, let's just try and think about it some more. And I went back to EMBO and talked to Dan Porvara and Thomas Lemberger... ...and we thought about it some more. And I think Ron thought about it with the ASAP Bio folks, Jessica and others. And we just sort of thought, well, let's do this, let's do that. (laughs) And, you know, to tell the truth, I can't remember... ...when it morphed from being a discussion into being reality...
1: Well one thing that clearly you decided not to do was make your own preprint server right so that uh, you you went no. with bioarchives uh...
0: Well you know bioarchive was extremely apt and fitting but it wouldn't have been essential because the the original idea I mean although it was always in the back of our minds to the public reviewing preprinting everything public everything fast and only that that was on my mind. But it was essential. The core of the idea at the time was not to waste uh, reviews, not to waste referees work. And so to allow authors, once they had a set of referees, to go to a set of journals and offer their paper And the reviews and their response to the journal and ask, would you be interested?
1: Okay, so the original idea was uncoupled from preprints.
0: It was in the back of our mind, but it was was mandatory. It was independent. Yeah, yeah, it was independent. At least the core of the idea was. And we developed it in all sorts of ways. We had the idea that, you know, the author could leave any time, the author could take. We have many, many drawings of arrows going all over the pages and PowerPoint presentations with things being shifted around. One idea was that the author can take the reviews, which is still the case, um, and say, oh, wow, these are much better than I thought I'd get. I will now withdraw them from the 17 journals that are available here and go straight to science. That's possible. That's still possible. But, you know, so so anything, it was very fluid at the beginning. It then became clear that BioArchive was a really good sort of anchor for the papers. But it wasn't, it think it, we should make it mandatory. I can't remember where it is right now. It will be mandatory, but it it certainly wasn't part of the initial idea.
1: So the core of the initial idea is the portability of the reviews. Yes. So it's yes. independent from making the, the, yes. uh, the work itself public at yes. an early stage. Yes,
0: which would also, of course, contribute to speeding up, right? I mean, that's already a significant gain in time because, you know, you get it, Reviewed, you get your three reviews, you think about what you want to say, you give it to the first journal that might be interested. Uh, They say yes or no. If they say yes, fine, you know, then it's just like it would have been. If they say no, you go to the next journal, you don't have to re review. So you're already gaining time. That in itself was already a gain in time. And it also already had the advantage that it stopped referees from commenting on what the journal should ask for to make it right for that journal. So it uncoupled that, and it gained speed in publishing.
1: Well, the question yeah. is right now, as, as we know from Embo Press, what really costs money in, in a good journal are salaries mm. to these people, yes. to, to the highly qualified scientific editors. And right now Review Commons is depending on that money being spent, uh, let's say, at Embo Press by the Embo Journals. Um, since it's Mm -hmm. the main, let's say, chunk Mm -hmm. of of high-quality scientific publishing. Sustainability you want it, right. Yeah, so where where does it go from there?
0: So it serves actually many people. It serves the authors in giving them these good neutral reviews that they can judge where there is no, you should do 79 other experiments if you want to get into this journal. They could pay for that. It serves the journals who get a paper with reviews attached. So they're... They could overall, of course, they can't sack an editor because they get in one uh, paper with three reviews, but overall, over the entire system, that saves money for the journals. And it also does, and this is what I find most interesting, it also does what this whole open access debate has (laughs) as an aim. Namely, it makes refereed work available very fast. I just find this far more interesting than and is pushing for open access and exposing yourself to predatory journals who promise open access and then deliver crap. But that's a different theme. So sustainability. You could, in principle, charge any of these people for a service if it was recognized that good refereeing is an activity that somehow has to be funded by the science system and by the research system. Now, funding comes from funders. So funders could decide to fund it all. Publishing is economic enterprise. It's a business enterprise. So the business, namely the publishing industry, could pay for it. And it's a service for authors. And they could pay for it. As with open access, the trouble is the money's in the system, but it's being distributed along channels that aren't easy to redirect to funding a new entity like this. So I think we'll have to continue to uh, rely on project funding from funders who see this as an interesting way to go and somehow combine that with charging elsewhere. But look how long it took for open access. I mean, open access publishing and the economic model is, is for open access publishing is something that again gets muddled. The value, the ethical and moral and political value and the financial value get muddled. So it's very hard to do the transition, but it hasn't it still hasn't happened for open access publishing. Getting the money from where it used to go, namely the libraries, to where it needs to be to work, namely the authors, has not worked so far. The funders who want that could of course also say we only care. The open access movement is only about having work publicly available. And reliable work available with good refereeing. So they could just pay entities like review comments. The interesting thing then is you'll need somehow to evaluate the quality. You need some kind of metric, because that's what everybody wants, for the review process. So how the heck do you do that? Maybe that ties in with having a metric for the reviewers. There's nothing in place for that at all. Each editor, Mm -hmm. of course... Each edit professional editor has that in their brain, that's their hugest asset. So, an editor leaves, you lose all that, but that's not written down anywhere, and it can't be easily written down.
1: Well, and it and it's a very complicated process, right? I think it's people need to appreciate that the editor isn't just. Uh, looking for a big name or, or for... uh,
0: Oh, no, not at all. There there are
1: concerns, there are concerns that are very important, right? Yeah. Are are there conflicts of interest? Yes. Um, Yes. Is this uh, this a paper that is interdisciplinary? So do I need a computational biologist, an immunologist and a medical doctor to to weigh in on this? But,
0: you know, there's also, uh, let's not pretend that everything in science is completely objective, measurable, rational. There's also a huge personal component, and that matters, and it's good. So I'll give you an example, which I think is really important, and I'll try and return to it. The review comments process requires the receiving journal to understand and evaluate the referee's reports. Now, anybody can understand and evaluate them just by the written word. But one very open-minded, highly regarded colleague, who I, I'll say works at eLife and who's very much in favor of this project, said that when he gets these referees' reports, he reads them, he understands them, but he can't read between the <coughs> lines because he may not know the referee. So, you know, if I ask Max Smith to review a paper on this, I know all Max always goes on hyperbole over certain fields of science so when when he goes overboard then i know to take that with a grain of salt whereas i know that maggie meyer is always bitter when it comes to you know a completely different thing so when she bitches i'll take that with a grain of salt i respect them both but i can read their reviews with a way that i can't necessarily read the reviews that someone else has provided whom i don't know so there's a lot of that you can say, well, that's nepotism and that's, you know, buddy-buddy networks. But I don't think it is because, I mean, damn, we're all people and we all care about the science we, we review. So I thought, I thought that was a very interesting aspect, that there's much more to it than some sort of ticking boxes and, you know, checking the facts. There's a lot more to that than to, to, to good reviewing. One thing we haven't talked about is this this fear of scooping, which I don't get. I do not understand what... I mean, being scooped means somebody gets a discovery, a finding, or, you know, something less interesting than a discovery or finding, whatever, out there, before you've had your chance to say it. And so they don't want to put their stuff out because they're afraid of being scooped. But they're putting it out... So they are, in fact, scooping their competitors. So it must mean that in people's minds, scooping doesn't mean you go out there and claim a discovery. It only counts if you have it in a journal. That, to me, is the craziest thing. I mean, you're, you, you have credit. I was first to say it. Here it is in BioArchive, even with reviews. And just the fact that from that point to it appearing in Journal Cell Biology, when somebody else quickly put it out and somewhere else. I'm no longer the first who reported it. I don't get it.
1: In part one of this interview, Maria told us how an offer from the Max Planck Society to start her own group in Tübingen shrunk her time at UCSF with Pat Ferro from a second postdoc to a three-month sabbatical. At the same time that she was starting her first lab, Maria was also starting a family with immunologist Jonathan Howard. In one discussion you've had, I, I don't know if this was a misprint, but in one interview you, you, because at this time you're you're starting a family also in the early '90s, oh and, yes indeed, and there is a there's a quote from an interview where I, I don't know if it was misprinted, it should have been the MPI or something, but it says there was no kindergarten in Tubingen. That can't be. There has to be a so the childcare situation and, and all well,
0: that. that that that's it's not a misprint. There was no kindergarten at the institute. There were, of course, uh, city kindergartens, but you know this was before a time when city councils or city governments had to provide enough kindergarten places for all potential takers. So it was impossible. It would have been impossible for me to get a place in a in a local communal kindergarten. Plus, they all started at three at the age of three. So what do you do with a half year old baby? There weren't any.
1: So what did you do?
0: Together with a colleague, I revived a project that she and others had had the year before to start a kindergarten at the Institute. And so, I don't know, they'd failed. I'm, probably, I'm not going to speculate why, but um, we just took it in hand and did it, you know, brute force, not taking no for an answer ever. And I have to say, we had fantastic support. Again, from Yanni, who felt it was necessary that. So as he called Kaushing, my colleague, has her oldest daughter is similar age to my oldest son. So for them, we did it. And Yanni helped, the Max Planck Society helped, the Society gave us a flat in a, in, a, in a sort of block of flats that they had right by the Institute that was used by Institute staff. And they just sequestered one of those flats and gave it to us. And I think they probably even gave us funding
1: as well. It's hard to imagine as <laughs> a situation.
0: It's not a fun situation, I can tell
1: you. Because you were also separated from your husband, and not, I mean, geographically, not yes. definitely. Yes. Right, so. Yeah,
0: yeah. That, that's, that was not so much a problem. You know, that's, that, that's not a problem. Um, in fact, at the time, I was not separated from my husband because he came over from Cambridge to be there for the birth of the baby and then for the first half year. He sort of had this idea that he would hold the baby on his lap and write a book <laughs> on immunology. Yes, yes. As you can well imagine, that book on immunology never got written.
1: Maria is one of the directors of the Christian Nusslein-Volhart Foundation, established in 2004 to provide support for young women scientists with children. Maria's interests in broader policy issues were central to her time as EMBO director. EMBO had always been involved in policy. A key moment was its participation in the Azilomar Conference on Recombinant DNA in 1975 and in shaping the regulations that stemmed from it. EMBO, led by then-director John Tooze, organized a follow-up meeting with the NIH in 1978 to revise the very restrictive guidelines for recombinant DNA research that had resulted from Azilomar. Tues went as far as returning to the lab himself to conduct experiments to demonstrate that the recombinant viral vector sequences used at the time would not integrate into the mammalian host cell genome. By 2009, the EMBO Council and leadership were also pushing for a more structured approach to policy. Maria created a policy program in 2011. Michelle Garfinkel, who at the time was a science policy analyst at the J. Craig Venter Institute, was recruited to lead it, and she is currently the head of the EMBO policy program. Michelle trained as a virologist and got her PhD in microbiology at the University of Washington. She has worked in science policy for 20 years.
2: EMBO had actually been involved in a lot of biomedical research policy sorts of activities over its entire existence, perhaps most famously at the Asilomar meeting in the mid-70s, having to do with uh, recombinant DNA research. But there had never been in-house a structured program to really look at issues, uh, particularly from the EMBO community, in a very uh, structured and easily usable way for decision makers. And in policy programs that I had been in, were always aware of, of EMBO's history of, again, work in policy. I had actually just tangentially known Maria from having worked in the same scientific area as she did when I was a postdoc. So I found that really interesting that, that she was the director and wanted to put effort into policy. And I was really interested even while I was working in the U.S. in European approaches to policy and thinking about ways to integrate what I knew from my training in various areas of science and research policy with sort of European policy issues and helping to develop that work. We've really focused in three big areas. So one is sort of the classical EMBO area of biotechnology and new and emerging technologies, uh, applications, uh, what comes from our research, um, who gets to use the results of that research, how it's applied. So that I think will always be important for EMBO no matter where we sit in the building. That really is a, a key thing for us. The second area we've worked a lot on is research integrity. So this has been both again, sort of a policy analytic view, understanding how research integrity is used within European-based laboratories, how administrators view it, how to integrate it better into researchers' day-to-day work. And we have a practical part of that as well, which has to do with introducing these concepts in person in our various communities and to particularly in areas where our, our members have laboratories, and we've done a lot of work with them on that. And the third area is something that sort of evolved over time. When I first arrived, we were calling this area of inquiry something like scientific publishing. That has now, of course, evolved really into something much more about open science. And we have had not only in the policy program, but throughout EMBO, a lot of focus on this. So this includes issues around research assessment, around openness and inclusion in who comes into the research community and issues related to that.
1: We asked Michelle, which concerns expressed by the scientific community and EMBO members the policy program was currently addressing?
2: There's been a couple of these, but I think the one most recently, and I think generally of interest to our EMBO communities, is around genomic heterogeneity in tissue culture cells, uh, which came about um, actually through a conversation between one of our members, Rudy Abersal, And Thomas Lemberger, who is the deputy head of Embo Press and working on source data, and they had a conversation about this issue. And Thomas came back to me and said, is this an interesting issue? So this is about whether changes in the genomes of tissue culture cells, which, of course, change over time. It's not something to be prevented, but something to be understood what we can do about that from a policy perspective to help with making the reproducibility of the research better by knowing where the, those issues are. So with Rudy, we put together a workshop and um, looked at a lot of these issues from the perspective of biobanks, from journals, from policymakers, uh, particularly who made you know, be deciding whether to fund projects or not, what they should be funding, should they be funding more research on why this happens or how to prevent it. And we're putting that together in a report that will be available soon. And again, we'll use that as a way to go to these decision makers and say, you know, we know this is an issue. Here are some options for how to deal with it. Everything that I've talked about really was also the work has come. Right. So, again, I've alluded to not only the other people at EMBO, but certainly the people directly in the program who have worked very hard on all of these issues over time. Um, I will say that for as as long as we've had the program now, which has been 10 years. We've really only had um, three staff directly in the program. So this was Sandra Mendesholy, Helen Sitar, and Vidnukala, who also works on engagement issues, which will be of importance over time for EMBO. but as, as well, I really want to give a lot of credit to Maria Lepton, who really saw the value of this kind of work and wanting to highlight it and make sure that EMBO is involved in both policy and political processes to be able to, again, represent our community better.